Welcome to the Heathen History Podcast. I'm Ben. I'm Lauren. And last week we were talking about uh, one of the founding personalities of heathenry, uh, certainly in the United States and Canada, Elsa Christensen. For those of you that haven't listened to our uh, previous issue... Stop. Go back and listen to it. We're not going to recap everything, because it's really interesting. Right. Uh, But real briefly, really briefly, Elsa Christensen was born in Denmark and worked as a teacher and a hand weaver for a time. She was involved in political causes at the time. She started out as a uh, syndicalist. That's a labor movement. Her husband was involved with a uh, movement called the Strasserites. That's kind of a worst-of-both-worlds fusion of fascist and communist ideas, unfortunately. After World War II, they left Denmark, lived in England briefly, emigrated to Canada... Uh, where they ended up living in Toronto. And about the time that her husband died, uh, Elsa started putting out a newsletter called The Odinist, which would run from, what, 1972 to uh, 1993 1993, and become uh, really one of the first venues for finding out about uh, the Odinist religion that she was launching. And we talked about her version of Odinism, which was really not very devotional at all. I would call it very gods are archetype, Jungian. Mm -hmm. There was not a whole lot of focus on worship. Right. Uh, As far as I can tell, they didn't even hold feignings or bloats. It was symbol and celebrate Hitler's birthday. And study groups. Yes. Most of the content of the Odinist was um, political and social commentary. It was like Alex Jones has a newsletter. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. And Alex Jones is a bit quieter and more more calm. Alex Jones on Xanax. Okay, there we go. Alex Jones, Jones on, on Xanax. Xanax. Or Glenn Beck not on cocaine. You take your pick. Eesh. Anyway. Uh, so she lived in Toronto till late 1978 and she retired. Right. And then moved to Florida to the bustling metropolis of... Crystal River. Crystal River, Florida. Crystal River, Florida. Where she lived in a retirement trailer park. Right. With lived some in a... sketchy neighbors. Mm-hmm. That's actually a point that will come back in a little bit. Right, right. The sketchy neighbors end up playing a big role. Yes. Uh, she continued to put out The Odinist uh, eight times a year, ten pages an issue. Uh, she operated, at least in the 80s, I guess it would be a small business. Uh, it was called the Gallerhorn Book Service. Yes. That was basically a book catalog I don't know if it was primarily aimed at prisoners or not, but there were some books in there that were on Norse culture and mythology, probably a greater part that were political and social commentary from a far-right, rather ethnocentric perspective. Right. So one of the most notable things about her move to Florida is a couple of years into it, and Part of the thing here is it's really hard sometimes. This era with heathenry, I feel like it's hard to nail down exact dates on things. Right. So around 1983, give or take a year, she started corresponding with and then actually going into Florida prisons. She went into two different prisons. Yeah, she was working with a a prison called uh, Lowerly Prison, north of the city of Ocala. And uh, she also visited Timoka Prison, uh, which is in Daytona. She also did some work in a prison called Abel Park. 
called for quite a lot of driving. Abel Park Prison was 160 miles from where she lived. Timoka Prison was about 100 miles. Uh, so she certainly racked up mileage on the car. And that that is even true now today for almost anyone who does prison ministry history. I know people that live and you know, that do prison ministry just in Texas. And for those of you who are not from the South, not been exposed to Texas, Texas is huge. You can drive for a solid day mm. in Texas and never leave the state. True. In one direction. Right. I've in, done that. I have too. I have grandparents that live almost to the other side of Texas, and I've driven it several times, or they did live out there. So she worked out there. She worked in the Florida prisons. She got a, really, this was the first time that any kind of heathen, and to some degree, pagan prison ministry was established. Right. Um, she, along with Pete Pathfinder Davis, were probably, the, they were pretty much uh, doing it at about the same time in different places where Pete was in Washington. Right. Where they were establishing kind of the first pagan prison ministries. Right. Or prison outreaches. And at the same time, Elsie writes that she went up to Tallahassee and spoke with the main chaplaincy there and had them officially accept Odinism as a proper religion. I think that was the first time that a state prison system had recognized a heathen religion as being uh, legitimate. Right, and there's in that quote in that interview, right now we're talking, a lot of our information comes from a very, like a 26-page interview he did with Vortru that was published in 1993. Right. So in that with Vortru was in there, it talks about what kind of they required a religion to be. And I found that really interesting. Right. Uh, she discussed Odinism with the chaplain, and she says, quote, He certainly agreed that Odinism has what it takes to be accepted as a proper religion. It has mythology. It has a world picture. It has an idea about the world and cosmology and so forth. Therefore, the reason that I did that was that some of the chaplains were not too happy with getting our material into the prisons, for those of the inmates who had asked about it. So this was the best way of doing it. The main chaplaincy in Tallahassee agreed, and so therefore the local chaplains couldn't really say anything about it. And that's that's still a problem that you see today. I know that there have been several lawsuits, uh, one that was just settled within the past few years about getting non-Christian, but specifically heathen, religious material into prisons. Right. Um, it's, and like, for instance, you can't send books directly anymore. It has to come straight from the publisher. Like there's all these rules now that makes it very hard to get in things other than a Bible. Right. Now, I will say there's a quote from the prison chaplain administrator, a guy named Frank uh, Metcalf, said that, you know, his knowledge of her was that she cared deeply about people, especially the people. Oops. Um, now, granted, these were not huge groups by any means. They're probably at any time were maybe 50 total members across all the prisons. Right. In that same interview, she talks about how there's, you know, usually only about five people show up and she shows up and only have a few people, occasionally a dozen, five or six is more common. I certainly do not want uh, the fellowship to be a club for cons or ex-cons. The advantage is that when in prison, the inmates have time to discuss and digest what they read, a point that is often lost to people outside the hubbub of daily concern. And I think she's got a point there. You know, I have an aunt and uncle who are prison ministers, Christian prison ministers. Right. And it's definitely, pardon the pun, a captive audience. <laughs> but it uh -huh. really, but it really yeah. is. I mean, when you're in prison, you have time to read and digest and do the thing that you don't normally have 
on the outside and you're bored. People mm-hmm. are looking for something. Right. And they join gangs. They join religion. They get Jesus usually or they I don't or they become Muslim or heathen. There's definitely benefits to people in joining a religious group. But that being said, at the same time it's prison. Right. And you know, I can understand if your concentration is primarily prison ministry, that can't get your group a hard reputation. Right, right. But at the same time, you know, she did all this prison work, but I don't ever, I couldn't find, and maybe you have something, but other than the very beginning, there's not much about her actually having a group she meets with, a kindred, a fellowship mm-hmm. outside of the prisons. Right. That I, other than the very beginning, when she was in Ontario... I haven't found anything that lends me to believe that she ever had, like, a a real group. Yeah, I, I don't think she led a free world kindred. And, I mean, I'm assuming there weren't an awful lot of uh, heathens to form a kindred with in Crystal River, Florida. Well, I mean... Just a guess here. You never know. I mean... Mm-hmm. You know, you wouldn't think there'd be a lot of heathens to form a kindred with in Little Rock, Arkansas. And but look here, where we are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I think that it's... You know, she had that. At the same time that they were doing the prison ministry, she was also making contacts with other burgeoning leaders and groups. Mm -hmm. This is about the same time that you're also seeing the implosion of the original Ring of Troth. No, the original AFA. AFA, I mean. Excuse me. The original AFA. My my brain is a little... Okay. (laughs) If we go back to uh, the early 70s, in uh, this uh, Texas college student at... uh, Midwestern University in the bustling metropolis of Wichita Falls, uh, by the name of Steve McNallan, was uh, really kind of just a Viking fanboy who I think had just fallen in love with the Vikings uh, after reading a novel, which I think was called The Viking, uh, by a guy named Edison Marshall. And uh, he started this group called the Viking Brotherhood that was dedicated to Viking culture and privately worshiping the Norse gods. And the first three issues are mostly about Viking swords and Viking axes and Viking this and Viking that. And in, I believe, the fourth issue, he writes, Hey, I've just made contact with this other group of people who believe what we do. And he gave the address of the Odinist Fellowship, which at the time was still headquartered in Toronto. And you see ads uh, from the Odinist Fellowship running in his journal, The Runestone, for some time afterwards. So she makes contact with him. Mm-hmm. Another person that she makes contact with is Valgard Murray. Right. Now, Valgard Murray is ran the Arizona Kindred. Right. Which was, I would say, is probably like the first big name Kindred. Mm-hmm. I guess that's a good way to put it. It's the first Kindred of record of note that like, if you go back and look in old publications and stuff, that's really the first one that you mm-hmm. see and hear about. They started putting out a uh, Kindred uh, newsletter in the 70s that was called True, and that ended up becoming the journal of the Ausatru Alliance because Murray and the Arizona Kindred did a great deal towards uh, creating the Asatru Alliance in the wake of the breakup of the Asatru Free Assembly in 1987. But prior to that, mm-hmm. Valgard Murray's group, the Arizona Kindred, was the first affiliated group mm-hmm. with the Odenic Fellowship. Mm-hmm. And he was really kind of considered in communion with them. Right. And until they had a little breakup over... 
Elsa wanted to focus more on the political side. Right. Whereas Valgard Murray and that, they were more interested in the religious side. Mm -hmm. For better or worse. No matter. And believe me, there will be episodes on all of this in the future. Oh, yeah. But Mm -hmm. they were very much interested in kind of the religious side. So there was that breakup here. But even after that, Mm -hmm. she still maintained a very close relationship with Steve McNallan and Valgard Murray. Mm Mm-hmm past that into her later years and until her death. Right. And there's there's actually a third group that uh, she is connected to. At about the same time that she's getting the Odinic Fellowship off the ground, there's a couple of people in Britain uh, who we'll talk about later. At the same time that the Odinist Fellowship is getting off the ground in the early 70s, there's a couple of people in Britain, John Ewell and uh, John Gibbs Bailey, And they're interested in forming an Odinist group of their own. And uh, they corresponded with Elsa Christensen. And she sent them the names and addresses of all of the Odinist Fellowship members in in Britain. uh, All three of them. And the five got together and decided five was enough for a committee. And so they founded the London Odinist Committee for the Restoration of the Odinic Rite in April 1973. Ewell took the name Stubba, uh, Gibbs Bailey took the name Hoskuld, and in uh, 1980 the group reorganized and decided that they didn't have to be the committee to establish the Odinic Rite because they've established the Odinic Rite, so they're just the Odinic Rite. And then they broke up into the Odinic Rite and the other Odinic Rite, but we can talk about that later. Not to be confused with the Australian Odinic Rite. Exactly. Which is a completely different Odinic Rite. Mm -hmm. Um, Are you the Odinic right? <laughs> Piss off! We're the right to vote in! <laughs> Not to be... Oh! <laughs> Sorry. Uh, don't confuse the Odinic right with the rights of Odin. That That is something quite different. Oh, yeah. So, she does a lot of this prison work. Definitely, I think, I think a lot of her prison work did lay a groundwork for the growth of Odinism. Mm-hmm. Because... Even she said, you know, a quarter of the people that we have, that we bring out, are leadership quality. These mm-hmm. are people who are legitimately going to be leadership quality, and they're the kind of people that are going to do something when they get out. Yeah, there is leadership, talent. Uh, there's very gifted people in prisons. Um, yeah. It's a, it's a shame that that's uh, often lost or squandered or put to bad uses in many cases, but there's no denying it's there. So she went along pretty well publishing, mm-hmm. had her book service, had her prison ministry. And had, yeah, had some pretty peppery um, arguments raged in the white supremacist press. I've found back issues of uh, Willis Carto's old journal uh, called Liberty Bell. And if you remember from our previous episode, Willis Carto is kind of the person who got her into these circles and introduced her to... Yeah, Willis Carto introduced her to James Warner, who gave her his copies of Rudd Mills' Odinist publications and kind of got that ball rolling. But uh, there was some pretty peppery correspondence in the pages of Liberty Bell in the 1980s as to what religion would be the best religion for a uh, white nationalist movement. There were basically three. Odinism was one. Christian identity is another. That's Christianity with the white people being the chosen people and the Jews as being usurpers. But really, it's us white folks that have the promise of God and Jesus and salvation and all that. 
And the third is this kind of racialized pantheism. Basically, God is and is in everything, as far as I understand it. It was called Creativity, uh, a.k.a. the Church of the Creator. And it was founded by a gent named Ben Klassen, who, uh, as founder, took the title of Gluteus Maximus. No, that's oh. not right. Oh, 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 sorry. Pontifex Maximus. Sorry about that. Um, anyway, yeah, there were some uh, arguments going on in the letters to the editor section of Liberty Bell as to whether creativity or Odinism or Christian identity was uh, strategically the best. So you have here, this is um, from uh, Liberty Bell in 1984. Uh, you have somebody writing, I fooled around with several white racialist groups. Most were hung up on Christ being our only hope and were really ineffectual. They have been around for years and practically accomplished nothing except to get themselves killed or jailed without dealing an effective blow at any Jew. Once I realized the absurdities of spooky religions, creativity became the only logical answer. And the same writer, here we go, since Odinism failed to hold its own against the treachery and the cunning of the wily Jew, is that like the wily coyote? I, I guess, I don't okay. know. Because the Jews are inferior, but yet they're also outsmarting us. Right, right. Are they dropping anvils on our heads if they're the wily coyotes? Yeah. No. Okay, let's not push that too far. Yeah. Since Odinism failed to hold its own against the treachery and the cunning of the wily Jew, a thousand years ago when the Vikings were the fiercest and the most feared warriors in Europe, what makes Mr. Hand, the guy who'd written an earlier letter, think that today Odinism, when it has been a dead horse for a millennium, can now turn the tables? Isn't Odinism merely trading one set of spooks, namely the Norse gods, for another set of spooks, namely the Jewish passel, and can any intelligent and educated man in the 20th century really believe in either without insulting his own intelligence? I could go on, but I don't think I will. I, I believe mm -hmm. I've heard YouTube atheist channels about like this. Mm -hmm. but yeah. Right. But yeah, there was certainly a great deal of debate in white supremacist circles. Uh, some of Elsa's material was reprinted in issues of Liberty Bell. I think she may have written some letters to Liberty Bell, which I couldn't check in time for this podcast because there is a site that has a lot of back issues, but it's so infected with malware that I can't access it from where I am. Yeah. So she. So that, that's important when you're researching religions on a computer. Uh, you have to practice safe sex. Get it? Get it? Get it? I get it. Uh, well, one of the other things that I think is is important to bring up on this, is that that debate is still going on today mm -hmm. as far as who should be the religion for white supremacists. Mm -hmm. I mean, you still see that today. I mean, we've watched... I'm not going to name his name because he's kind of like Voldemort. I'm afraid if I say it too many times, he'll show up. Right. But right. there is a guy that is quasi-local to us who was an Odinist for a very long time and in the last two or three years has suddenly embraced Christian identity. We dodged this guy, by the way, for like 10 years. We're, oh. we're good. Oh, we're good. right. I know, who good. You're, I know who you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, we, 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 we threw a party when we found out he was no longer trying to be one of us. Mm -hmm. But people moving amongst these circles mm -hmm. seems to be pretty common as far as in that Christian identity because there is such a debate even now as to what people should believe. And then it gets even more weirder and complicated than that. But I, I definitely think that that is that's interesting that she... 
you know, that she was engaged in that debate trying to get more people to believe what she believed versus... Mm -hmm. Or if maybe not to win converts, but at least to establish respect and saying this is a legitimate means of expression for politically disaffected people of European descent. And I think that's, that's, you know, and that's a battle we're still fighting is the battle to be seen as a legitimate religion. Right. So all this went through 80s, pretty good, pretty respected in the Florida prison system. Mm -hmm. And then, dun, dun, dun. 1993. Elsa Christensen is dead. Mm -hmm. She was indicted by a federal grand jury. And it was actually in 1992. Sorry about that. The the trial was in 93. So, started out, she was indicted by a federal grand jury. And this is an article from the Gainesville Sun um, from November 21st, 1992, when she was 79 years old. Indicted by a federal grand jury on charges of conspiracy to traffic marijuana and hydromorphine, a synthetic heroin. This was all tied in, actually, to what had started out as a murder investigation of a man and then through investigating this murder they found all this information about a drug trafficking ring he'd been murdered because he hadn't paid for his drugs right and there's a whole lot of stuff here so and pretty much the general idea was that she had been driving a car multiple times that had marijuana and this hydromorphine in the trunk right from they were driving it from texas to florida and to be honest with you, their logic was not bad. She's an old lady. Mm-hmm. She's driving this car. I mean, if I'm a cop and I'm looking for drug traffickers, I'm not going to look at the 79-year-old lady driving down the road. Right. That I mean, that makes sense to me. But, so, she was not arrested. She did turn herself in. And then was immediately appeared before the federal magistrate. And then at the request of federal prosecutors, and this, I'm quoting here, Uh, The judge, whose name was Buck Curtin, that's a great name, (laughs) I'm sorry, Mm -hmm. Um, released her on her own recognizance, except she had a special condition that she had to follow until her trial, that she was ordered to stay away from any county, state, or federal detention facility because of evidence that they had, that the prosecutor had, that Christensen was smuggling marijuana and other drugs into the detention facilities through our prison ministry. And she swore up and down that she hadn't been doing that. Yes, and just to say, no charges were ever brought. Right. That said she ever did this. Like, no charges were ever brought. This is strictly just something that was brought up pre-trial and even somewhat during the trial, but mm. she was never arrested or charged for anything with smuggling anything to prisons. But it brought her prison ministry to a very short, sharp end. Yes. So this goes to trial in uh, February of 1993. And according to this particular article is that, you know, basically she was driving a Christian uh, acted as driver and provided storage for marijuana until it could be sold. There was a lot of a lot of discussion mm-hmm. within the news sources in the trial because the people who were testifying against Elsa Christensen were given reduced sentences, which is right. not, not an uncommon thing. Right. And, you know, district attorneys get famous and get reelected or reappointed, as the case may be, by arresting people and putting them in jail. It's what they do. It's what they're paid to do. Right. So the prospect of adding somebody to the list, you know, was probably, yeah. you know, people will often offer uh, reduced sentences in exchange for information that will put somebody else 
behind bars. So from the 12th, the article definitely comes up with and talks about, and the thing I, I want to compliment the author, uh, his name is Karen Voiles from the Gainesville Sun, in her reporting on this and not sensationalizing the fact that mm-hmm. Elsa Christensen was an Odinist. I, I, I have a lot, of, as a former journalist, I have a lot of respect for this this reporting. Yeah, there, there certainly would have been the temptation to drag that angle in and turn it into, you know, something that it's not. Right. So, Elsa Christensen's ties to a fellowship that believes in a Norse god were omitted from evidence, but a phone call between the 79-year-old woman and one of the witnesses against her was presented to the jury. So, mm-hmm. the, the thing is, is there was all this discussion and there was this call, this evidence they wanted to introduce. Mm-hmm. And but to do so, they ended up would also expose her her contacts with being involved with Odinism, and because they were afraid it would prejudice the jury, right. which in Florida it would. They actually had any references to Odinism and Odin stricken from the transcript before it was read to the jury. Right. So Christensen was identified has been identified by state prison officials as a representative or spiritual leader of the followers of Odin, and has for the past several years been permitted to minister to prisoners who were also believers. And then it has a list of the prisons she was at. And then that quote that we talked about in the last episode from Frank Metcalf, who was the administrator of the state prison's chaplaincy, that said, you know, made him believe she cared deeply about those people. And then other people got up and witnessed, you know, were also talking about how how caring she was. Mm-hmm. And which, you know, we'll, we'll talk about later in kind of her legacy. And then finally, she, she actually does testify in her, her defense. Right. And she'd made the, the mistake of uh, lying to the grand jury about how much she'd been paid to drive the car. She swore up and down that she didn't know it was being used to transport marijuana. Uh, she didn't know what was in the trunk. But uh, she'd originally told the grand jury that she'd been given $50.00 but later said it was uh, $500. She also testified that the women who rode with her to Texas had been smoking marijuana in the car, uh, but she didn't know that there was any in the trunk. So just a note, kids who are Mm -hmm. listening, be sure to check the trunk if you're driving someone else's car. Right. Make sure you know what they're putting in it. Right. And she had been, I think she was innocent of what was being transported. Her position was always that she had just been... Foolish, perhaps, to do a favor for friends of hers and not realize that they were transporting drugs. I will say, though, that she did that she did start to suspect it during the second mm-hmm. trip that she was transporting drugs. Right. All else aside, telling a lie to the grand jury is not a... That's really what got her in trouble. Yeah, that's not a good idea. And, of course, kind of alluding to what I had said, other witnesses had earlier testified Christensen was asked to be the driver because, as... A senior citizen, she did not fit the profiles of people transporting illegal drugs. Mm -hmm. Once again, Right. So... There was a lot of outrage in the heathen community uh, from people who thought that this was basically a frame-up, that she hadn't done anything wrong, uh, that she was being sent to prison, again, because of lying testimony of people that you know, ratted her out in exchange for lighter sentences for themselves. Suggestion that maybe she was being persecuted for her unorthodox uh, Odinist beliefs. Uh, She herself basically said, I don't don't think she ever said anything like that. Um, She wrote, uh, again, this is at the very end of that interview. Uh, She sent out a letter 
uh, to her uh, Odinist subscribers, uh, announcing that uh, the Odinist was ceasing publication. She writes, The people from one trip confirmed in court that I knew nothing about the pot, nor was I aware that anything illegal was taking place. However, two females from the other trip swore in court that I was part of the conspiracy. They made a deal with the FBI which cuts their sentence to a fraction of what it otherwise would have been. So I think her position always was that she was duped, uh, taken advantage of. I think that what it comes down to is that she had bad friends. Mm -hmm. Um, It wasn't so much that she was, it was any kind of conspiracy. And I think that the fact that it was, the Odinism was stricken from the record. Mm -hmm. You know, the thing is, I think if the government really wanted to railroad her, they would have fought harder. Mm Mm-hmm to keep that Odinism on the record because in rural Florida, just like in rural Arkansas or even regular Arkansas or Little Rock, that's going to deeply prejudice someone against you if they find out that you are part of some wacky, you know, what they would perceive as some wacky religion. Right. But I think that that's definitely part of it. So you actually have two issues of the runestone, which is the... I'm holding them up to the microphone right here so everybody can see. Oh, that still doesn't work. work. Okay, well, I'm going to riffle the pages into the microphone uh, so you can hear that I'm holding them. She served her prison term of five years and three months. I haven't really been able to find out much about how that went. I mean... This being prison, I'm assuming it was not filled with uh, sunshine and roses. I also think, though, that she probably, because of her age, mm-hmm. likely was... From what I know about prisons, because I got family like that. Come on, mm-hmm. admit it. You do, too. Everyone does. She was probably put in... Because of her advanced age, she was likely put in not really, like, nursing home, but they have... They have facilities for people of advanced ages, especially right. in Florida, where half the state is of, of an advanced age. Yes, yes. My, um, sorry, my wife's mother says that Florida is uh, the state for the newly wed and the nearly dead. Yeah. Or uh, as I've heard it called, God's waiting room. Yes. Anyway, so she was uh, released in um, 1997. And at the conclusion of her sentence, the uh, federal government announced its attention uh, to deport her. Uh, The AFA actually stepped in and engaged a lawyer, Mr. Jimmy Browning of Breckenridge, Texas, to try to defend her at uh, her immigration hearing. The uh, AFA alleged that um, the feds were trying to railroad her that the prosecutor had it in for her. Now, this was a position that was taken... Not just here, but also at the time of her trial, mm-hmm. where they had formed the the Free Elsa Christensen Committee. It was um, run by Steve McNallan and Valgard mm-hmm. Murray, uh, and funded by the AFA and the Alossatrio Alliance mm-hmm. uh, Kindreds. Yeah, I, do, I don't have issues of the Runestone that right. go back to that point, but, but I do uh, have I do have uh, secondhand. This is from um, Gods of the Blood and one of the other sources. By the way. Sources for all this stuff, as always, are going to be in our show notes right. and on the website. Mm-hmm. But they raised money for her defense and for her appeal. And although there's not, I could not find, I did download her sentencing paperwork and stuff and read it. It's pretty bog standard. There's nothing in there that looks, there was nothing of note right, in like right. her, in the court documents I could download off JSTOR. But they very vehemently claimed that all of this, her arrest and conviction, everything was very political. Mm-hmm. Elsa Christensen never, I just want to put this out here, did not call her conviction political. She said 
It was simply a case of, as I said earlier, mm-hmm. bad friends. Right. But she never once thought that this conviction was political. That was the position, though, that was taken by Valgard Murray mm-hmm. and Steve McNallan. Steve McNallan. And so then that passed on when she did get out in, and actually uh, she didn't, I know this is 97, but I think her trial, her deportment trial was actually before she was out mm-hmm. because she did serve, uh, she was sentenced to five years and four months and she did serve almost all of it. Right. So, um, and she was sentenced and there was a quote from the, I want to, before we get back into that, there was a quote from the judge in here, which, you know, basically the judge flat out said she is here because she chose to be. She lied to the grand jury. Her age is the reason she got involved. She was the perfect decoy, but pretty much she got herself into it and it's sad. And a lot of people do get that. This, Mm -hmm. I think another thing to put up here for some of your listeners, right? This is also war on crime era. Mm-hmm. This is Clinton administration. War on war, drugs. War on drugs. Mandatory minimums. Mm-hmm. I don't know that she could have gotten, especially with a federal sentence, I don't know that she could have gotten a lighter sentence than that just because of how incredibly strict mm-hmm. the drug sentencing laws were. Yeah. I wasn't in Florida at the time, but I, I was in California at the time. And this was the time when California passed its uh, three strikes, you're out law, which mandated you know very heavy sentences for anybody convicted of a third felony, uh, sometimes for felonies that you wouldn't like your third count of entering a horse in a race under an assumed name could actually get you 20 years, at least in theory. Yes. Uh, but regardless, that was certainly praised nationwide. And there's certainly this uh, push to deal very harshly with felons and with uh, certainly with uh, drug sellers as well. So I think she might have gotten caught up in that. And that, and this, of course, hers was, this was on a, these wouldn't have been under Florida statutes. Her conviction was under federal statutes. Right. So, and that was definitely, you You had that Reagan and Bush and then Clinton. I mean, all three of those presidents were a perpetual cycle of increasing jail time, especially for drugs. Right. Clinton, of course, didn't inhale. No, he didn't. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's, I will say that pretty much everything that Elsa Christensen had confirmed to the author of this Vortru article, that pretty much everything in the Gainesville Sun was correct. Right. So So she's released. Uh, she's deported. The AFA uh, spent some money on uh, legal aid. There was actually a um, a business in Canada called Heritage and Tradition that made a special run of T-shirts uh, to raise money for her uh, defense at at the hearing. And now this is her deportation here, right? Um, they were going to have uh, just released her at Windsor, Ontario, which is right across from Detroit, mm-hmm. but. You know, she had been in uh, the United States for 20-some years and didn't know anybody in Canada anymore. And McNallan writes, the idea of dumping her on the wintry streets, a ready victim for wandering criminals and other mishaps, was not acceptable to us. So they worked out a way to transport her from Detroit to uh, Vancouver, where she would stay with uh, Max Hyatt, who I believe also wrote under the name Edred Wodenson. Mm -hmm. Because if you have an Edred Thorson, you have to have an Edred Wodenson and probably an Edred Frayson to have all three of the Dumasilian functions in there. Uh, But anyway, so Max Hyatt was going to keep her in uh, Vancouver, 
uh, over on that side. And in the end, they didn't need to make all those arrangements because the lawyer was able to get the U.S. to fly her uh, to Vancouver instead of having to uh, be driven there. And there was a... Now, prior to her being sent to prison, mm-hmm. she, of course, ceased Gilderhorn Book Service and her and the Odinist mm-hmm. and transferred all of that to... Steve McDonald's AFA and the Runestone. So if you, let's say you had just paid for a brand new subscription to the Odinist. Right. That subscription would be transferred over to, and you would get so many issues of the Runestone. Right. It would be, it was like, because the Runestone came out four times a year. Mm -hmm. Odinist came out eight. So you would get, for every two Odinists you paid for, you get one Runestone. Right. And at its height, the Odinist had 800 subscribers. So I'm sure, I don't know what the size of the list was at the time that this happened, but I'm sure the AFA's mailing list got uh, appreciably larger. Right. But yeah, it was definitely a really good thing there for the AFA. I think it really grew the AFA's ranks. Another thing was that she also entrusted the author of this Vortru article with a lot of pictures of A-Rod Mills and stuff, because she had been writing A-Rod Mills' wife before she died. Right. And so she had these pictures and stuff, and those were published. Actually, uh, published by the time this comes out, this will have been almost a month ago. But if you go look at our Facebook page, I actually published the picture that she has of the the Sydney Odinist Festival, Mm -hmm. where she has a group of the A-Rod Mills, which just proves heathens have always been a bunch of dorks. Yeah, the, the guy bore a striking resemblance to a um, less pleasant version of Phil Collins. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, she also left some personal pictures, and um, I will put some of those up on our social media when this comes out. All right. So you guys can see, get an idea, get that visual picture in your head of, right, right. of this woman. All right. Um, so she ends up in Vancouver. Right. And stays for a time with Max Hyatt, and then goes and lives on her own for a while, starts up a new newsletter called Midgard Pages, which for a time Hyatt was hosting on his website. He operated a publishing business called Woden's Dog Press. Right. And he was the leader of an Austria Lines affiliate Kendrick called Woden's Kendrick. Right. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to track down Midgard Pages it used to be hosted on their website. The website is now defunct. Uh, Mr. Hyatt died uh, not that long ago, a couple of years, maybe. I'd have to look it up. But the website is now down, and archive.org, I haven't yet been able to, to get that information. Right. My problem was is I found one place they might be, and it looked way too sketchy, so I decided mm-hmm. not to. Right. But uh, she moved into her own place there in Parksville, Vancouver Island, British Columbia. Mm-hmm. You know, and she moved out. She was staying with Max Hyatt, moved out over political differences, though I never really found what those were. But being that they were both Odinist heathen, and having spent a lot of time, it doesn't take much for us to get into an argument. Right, it's, right. Especially that era mm-hmm. of of heathenry. That was mm-hmm. that was peak. Yeah. I can't think about how many like even just a few years later, like the truth mailing list was just uh mm-hmm. it was awful. Yeah, we used to have blow ups once every few months or so. Yeah. It it was mm-hmm. it, but it was like that everywhere. Like mm-hmm. the mailing list and forums were just, just yeah. So, printed Midgard page was like I said, I can't find anything of. But mm-hmm. one thing that did happen when she got, you know, she got out of, of prison, and this is from Gods of the Blood, she mellowed mm-hmm. a lot. 
And because of that, she kind of pulled back on a lot on a lot of some of her stances. She never was someone that really ever called for like violent overthrow. Mm-hmm. But she certainly as she got out of prison, and I don't know if it was her prison experience, if it was living in Canada, what it was, it mellowed her out. And she, mm-hmm. although she was still a racist, don't get me wrong. Right. She was a much more mellow racist. Right. I've heard the same thing from somebody who had met her. I haven't met personally a lot of the people that we've talked about. I mean, obviously, Rudd Mills died before I was born, and I never got to meet Elsa myself. But I did meet and actually stay in the apartment of once, gent by the name of John Post. Now, Post had a group running in 2003 called the National Prison Kindred Alliance uh, that was going to carry out this great prison outreach program and sell books and ritual gear and was working very closely with the Odinic Rite. In retrospect, uh, they probably should not have handed that off to somebody who had done time in prison uh, for unarmed robbery and confidence schemes. Post uh, ended up disappearing, uh, having taken a great deal of merchandise and a great deal of money and not actually exchanged one for the other. Last I heard, he had shown up in, I think, Ukiah, California, claiming to be a former CIA operative or something like that. Post is very, very good at telling you exactly what you want to hear. He's very engaging, very friendly, trustworthy, not so much. Uh, But he'd actually, I think he'd actually met Elsa. Uh, Certainly he knew of her work uh, because he'd been in prison himself. He'd been in prison at Supermax, I think, uh, and had been in one of the early prison kindreds. Mm -hmm. And what I got from him, if memory serves, is that she had indeed kind of stepped back from the heavily political earlier messages, emphasizing more the cultural uh, aspects of Odinism. I don't know how spiritual she ever got, but certainly I think she'd calmed down quite a bit on the the uh, the Yaki and Spengler sociopolitical stuff. Now, this is from uh, Gods of the Blood right. uh, with an interview that the author actually did. And she says, she now argues the main focus of the fellowship needs to be cultural, declaring that she aims to keep pagans inclined to political excesses out of the revived Odinist fellowship. This is a quote from her. I have been too receptive before and we had problems in some of the prisons because some who really did not know what Odinism was disgraced us by acting stupid and saying stupids in the name of our ancestral faith. And then continues on, applicants need not assign a state, affirming they tend to live by an Odinist code of conduct, which includes staying within the legal laws of their country of residence. Refusing to speak publicly about Aram empowerment, Christensen probably prefers to serve as a revered icon than to make a comeback at the forefront. Right. And she very much was a revered icon. People still refer to her as the folk mother. Right. Certainly by the time that Vortru essay was published, she was this very grandmotherly figure. The interviewers, a gent named Thor Sanhet, probably a pseudonym. I think it means Thor will confirm this. Hey, Thor, you want to confirm it? Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, I think he went with somebody else named Paul Eric Filsunu. Yes. uh, Who had some interesting ideas of his own. But anyway, they walk into her trailer, and it's not in very good shape, but it's immaculate inside, and she sits down and serves them Danish pastries. I mean, very much in tune with the Danish ideal of hygge. Mm -hmm. You know, the the feeling of instant warmth, comfort, and emotional satisfaction. Yeah, a folk mother, again, very much revered by people. Right. 
So she retired from the Odenic Fellowship on May 2nd, 2005, mm-hmm. and then passed away two days later at approximately 9.30 p.m. on May 4th, 2005. The Odenic Fellowship is still going. According to their website, which is not, looks like it had been updated in a couple of years, but the website is still active. It mm-hmm. still has an active contact form and a mailing address. It is currently, um, still exists today, being run by Ralph Phillips in Parksville, British Columbia. Mm. Although I would argue probably not a influential mm-hmm. organization, it is still a functional organization. Right. You do have to be aware that there is another Odinist fellowship. We'll talk about this later, but the Odinic Rite in England uh, actually split in um, uh, the early 90s. Uh, into two groups that both called themselves the Odinic Rite. Uh, so there was a bit of confusion there as to which Odinic Rite is right. Do we have the right right or the wrong right? Probably enjoying that a little too much. I Once again, mm-hmm. note to future heathens, right. please, let's get better at naming things. Right. Anyway, the um, one of the Odinic Rites, they actually go by... In, in Britain, you can get these one-word, uh, basically, mail-forwarding addresses. And the Odinic Rite split into to the Odinic Rite Runic and the Odinic Rite Edda, with Runic and Edda yeah. being their male forwarding codes. And the Odinic Rite Runic is now just the Odinic Rite, and the Odinic Rite Edda changed its name in 1998 to the Odinist Fellowship. Uh, they're actually active in England. They've actually refurbished a um, historic building in the town of Newark-on-Trent mm-hmm. uh, to be a temple. So they've actually got a, a temple going on in a build. I don't think it's an old church, but it is... Right, a historic building. Yeah, several hundred years old at the least. So let's talk a bit about, as we kind of wrap up this episode, her influence post-death. and kind mm-hmm. of. So first of all, she, I mean, she's, as we said, she's the folk mother. She is revered. There are, she has feast days in several of the uh, major folkish organizations, the AFA, the AA, and most interestingly, she was a huge influence on Odinic insane. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, I did take three years of Spanish. Muy bien. So she is revered and has a feast day in the uh, Comunidad Odinista de España. Asatru. I'm going to say Asatru. I know that like my brain does not want to try to pronounce that in Spanish. Asatru? Asatru. There's no, uh-huh. like, but there's no marks on it, so I don't know. With no um, marks, it would be Asatru, I guess. Asatru. Yeah. Whatever. Whatever. And like a huge, like if you, you go and you look at some of their stuff, and I'll admit I used Google Translate to look at a lot of it, because while I did take Spanish, I took Spanish in the 90s, and my Spanish is not functional. My Castilian Spanish isn't great. Okay. I'm, I'm much more Latin American Spanish. Right. So I did use Google Translate, but I mean, they go very much, are very reverential to her, as well as the AFA. Mm-hmm. You see the Odenic right. Runic? Mm-hmm. The one that stayed the Odinic Rite in England? Yeah, that that was the Odinic Rite Runic, but it's now just the Odinic Rite. Has lots of information on her. Mm-hmm. I mean, they had... Which group was it that had the runestone card for her? Oh, now that I don't know, but she does have a uh, rune-carved uh, yeah. gravestone. Uh, with the same. Well, I mean, with the same Viking ship logo... Uh, that she'd used on the Odinist ever since 1972. Yes. Beautiful. You know, they, and that was one of the major organizations. I want to say it was the AA that did it, mm-hmm. the Austria Alliance. But, you know, she is very much revered. She was a, such a huge influence on 
even like I look mm-hmm. today at some of the stuff that I believe, and I definitely think that her influence led to the direct creation of the Ossetry Folk Assembly mm-hmm. and the Ossetry Alliance. Not well, the Ossetry Free Assembly is kind of a co, mm-hmm. but I would argue that her influence was on Steve McNallan after the split of the Ossetry Free Assembly, mm-hmm. heavily influenced the Ossetry Folk well, Assembly. Yeah, I mean, Christensen is the glue in that she's first responsible for taking Mills's ideas and taking them out of obscurity and putting them back into into some kind of circulation. She was influenced by him, right. even if she didn't care for his Masonic stuff. You know, as I said, she gave the names of three subscribers to uh, John Ewell and uh, John Gibbs Bailey and basically was able to get the committee for the uh, restoration of the Odinic Rite started. And McNallan started the Runestone before he'd found out about her, uh, before he'd really found anyone. The very first issue of the Runestone right. uh, was published in 11 uh, copies. And in, in the earliest issues of the Runestone, McNallan's not particularly folkish. He actually wrote this in the uh, the very first issue, quote, being a Viking is not a matter of race or nationality. It is a matter of the mind and the heart. For the record, that is on pages seven and eight of issue number one of the Runestone. Yes, yes, I've yes. got this on microfilm, and I can prove that McNallan actually said that. And by the way, if you see the, the meme floating around Facebook mm-hmm. and other social media, Ben made that. Oh, yeah. Forward it, forward it greatly. Yep. He said in the in the third issue, he actually took a letter from a Wiccan who was wondering whether Celtic and Norse religionists could get along, considering what the Vikings did to the Celts back in the day. He stated, following the Norse religion is wholly apart from race or national origin. Third issue of the Runestone, page 10. In the pages of the fourth issue, page 12... McNallan announced, hey, I've just made contact with a group of followers of the Norse gods based in Toronto. That's Elsa Christensen. He reminisced much later that this is about the time when he starts abandoning the naive universalist views of his youth. And without asking him, I don't know exactly what the influence was, but it can't be coincidence that about the time that McNallan starts reading The Odinist, is about the time that the tone in the earliest issues of the Runestone goes from being basically, wow, the Vikings were cool, to an increased concern for the political and social problems of white heterosexual males. Hey, Ben? Yes? You know, we could ask him, but he's not on Facebook anymore. Oh. Oh, well. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't. Hey, would we would we like to have him on the show at some point? If if he wants to come on the show, I'd be happy to interview. All him. right. It's like I said, we have our biases, but we are going to try to examine all these things—the good, the bad, the ugly—as mm-hmm. objectively as we can. True. So another thing right. is, you know, her prison ministry was right. such a huge. I mean, that good for good or bad, I don't know that Trothian Reach and all of these other prison inreach services would be there without right. her work. Well, I mean, inreach. In the in troth circles, there were people that used to argue we shouldn't bother with prison ministry at all, that these were outlaws and the Utgarth, not legitimate heathens because they'd broken the rules. Well, some of them had broken the rules. Right. And you just, know? you know. But anyway. Yeah. 
So there, there was debate as to whether we should bother with this at all. We had prison stewards on and off, some of them very hardworking. Uh, Jane Ruck, in particular, up in Oregon, probably worked harder than you know any three stewards put together to lead prison outreach in addition to free world outreach. But I think what did it is the fact that you know everyone eventually realized, hey, we have people in there. Many of them will eventually come out. They're going to have to function in free society. We can't just abandon them to the people who were pushing the hard racist right. version of Asadru slash heathenry slash Odinism. You know, we can't necessarily make the prison environment more racially tolerant because dang, but we need to at least be out there and let them know that there are other types of heathenry that are out there, other places where with luck they may be able to find a place and make their mark at some point. So even if only to try and fend off bad examples, I think that has driven a lot of the Troth's approach to doing prison ministry. You know, we can't afford just to leave this many people Right. Uh, to the tender mercies of white Aryan resistance or whoever is working there. But I, I would argue that without this foundational work that she did, right. it would be because she got in, now all these other groups are in as well. And then, of course, you know, she was part of that catalyst that got the whole folk soul and metagenetics going, which mm -hmm. we will completely dissect in our next episode because Ben, ben can science the hell out of that. Mm -hmm. Damn right. And then, you know, she definitely, you know, she brought folkish Odinism to America. Mm -hmm. While, you know, you do have the the Red Mills and you have the, the groups like, you have the groups in like the uh, Nazi era German faith movement. Right, right. Uh, really, she was the first one who was really introducing it and specifically introducing it into these receptive mm racist circles. Right. You know, she's the glue. She connects pre-war Nazi influences or general right-wing influences and Rudd Mills and the modern Ausatru movement. You know, she made it possible for the Odinic right to form. She influenced the Ausatru alliance. She strongly influenced the AFA She's still revered by all these groups as, you know, the folk mother. And in a sense, she earned the title. I don't agree with her politics at all, but certainly American heathenry would look very different and might not exist in a form we'd recognize if it hadn't been for uh, her work. You know, and, good, bad, and ugly. You know, I agree. It wouldn't exist. I think that as a an influence, it wasn't all negative. Mm. Because she did strongly encourage scholarship, and she did very much connect people, mm -hmm. which is something I do, and it's hard. It's yeah. very hard. In a way, she served not just, you know, she served your role, where you do publications and that kind of stuff. My role, you know, I'm a steward for the mm -hmm. troth and connecting people. She did all of these roles that we spread out now in heathen organizations among mm -hmm. 10 people. One person. She was a one-woman show. Mm -hmm. There's not much, any discussion that I could find about anyone else really doing any of this work in the fellowship except her. Mm -hmm. And that's that's a lot of dedication. Yeah. Because it's, for those of you who aren't involved in kind of heathen organizing, it's a lot of work. Mm -hmm. A lot of time, you know, I, I joke that I work a full-time job so that I can afford to be, to do my heathen work. <laughs> mm. But it is a lot of work. And she definitely 
gave and was very generous. So even though, like I said... Right. And none of that excuses the fact that she had very definite Nazi connections and very definite anti-Semitic views and, you know, these connections with the Strasserite wing of the uh, National Socialists. But as we were saying in the previous episode as well, people are bundles of disparate and sometimes contradictory views. And, you know, certainly she had a lot of views that were very objectionable. And I certainly disavow those and do what I can in this day and age to combat the spreading of those. Heathens against hate. Damn right. (laughs) Right. At the same time, you know, she had an amazing impact and not all of it was evil. I can't find it in my heart to call her, you know, the cackling head of a legion of stormtroopers or something like that. Whether brown-shirted stormtroopers or armored stormtroopers with blasters, either one. And, that, and mm-hmm. that's that's the thing with our history. Our history is even complicated. Yeah. We people lay down all kinds of layers. We have this metaphor of the well of weird as being the place where the past is laid down. And there's all kinds of stuff that's been laid down. Uh, sometimes very hard to separate the good stuff from the bad stuff that's been laid down. And on this podcast, we try to present all of it as evenly as a couple of fallible individuals can. So that is Elsa Grissom. All right. Uh, next episode, we'll be talking medics. And then probably two more episodes after that, we will have our live episode, mm-hmm. which we, although as we're recording this, we haven't recorded yet. By the time this releases, we will have recorded at Troth Moot in Fort Flagler, Washington. Right. So uh, if you want to support us, please go visit our Patreon. Our patrons get sneak peeks. You get the episode early. As soon as we get it, you get it. Special gifts, access to our Facebook group, a chance to, to have input and questions about the topics that we're talking about. And that's at patreon.com forward slash Heathen History. And you can follow us on Twitter at Heathen History or Facebook at facebook.com slash Heathen History uh, for updates. And on our website, heathenhistory.com, as always, we have our show notes and our sources. And our theme music is called Happy Viking. It's by Roller Music. And our show is edited by Hands-On Keyboard. For the Heathen History Podcast, I'm Lauren. And I'm Ben. Wassail, y'all. y'all.